Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very 95th ever episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games, and that's it. Honestly, that's kind of it. Nothing else. My name is Quentin Smith, and I am joined by Matthew Lees. Hello, it's me, Matt Lees, and and board games. And you've brought board games with you. I have. In spirit. Yes, and physically. We're in my house, so we're surrounded by board games, because I'm an incredibly messy man. Working as a board game journalist is kind of like living Tetris, you know, where boxes come, they arrive, Mm -hmm. you need to get rid of them, because if you don't, you're going to be crushed to death. Yeah, you have to line them all in one flat row and then they disappear. I know, no one knows that except us. Yeah. This is going to be an unusual episode of the podcast because it's all about our recollections of Festival, Mm. a tabletop convention you probably haven't heard of because it is Danish, Mm. the land of Denmark, Mm -hmm. the home of Hamlet, Mm -hmm. and... Ham. Uh, Danish ham? Hamlet, I believe, is just a small ham. Oh, right. Uh, So it's just ham. They've just got a lot of ham, a lot of bacon. Um, It's a a great country. Uh, There's a lot about it I really liked. (laughs) Our audience are going to realise there was a point there where you went from being insincere to To sincere. being sincere, yeah. Well, that's the line. We've just stepped over it. But I know in in sincerity, um, Denmark was great and Fastival was great. On today's podcast, we're also going to be talking about, just so you know, some of the games we played at Fastival. Yes, we're going to be talking about uh, Hansa Teutonica, a classic Euro game. We're going to be talking about some unreleased games like Deep Blue, which is coming Mm -hmm. out uh, uh, next year from a very big... Uh, French publisher. Uh, we've played the new upcoming big box expansion for Flam Rouge. Uh, the designers who were there at Festival showed us their upcoming racing game, kind of a spiritual successor to Flam Rouge, mm. uh, which will be coming out next year, we think, mm. called Auto. Mm-hmm. And it's about, Matthew, what if you were racing not bikes, but cars? That sounds ridiculous. Finally, we're going to end this podcast by talking about midlife crisis. Mm, the midlife crisis. What a great time it is to have a midlife crisis. But is it great in a board game? Well, this is the sequel to Fog of Love uh, from uh, Jacob Yaskov, the designer of Fog of Love. And he said, hey, what's a much harder thing to market and make? I'm going to do that. It's a yeah. game. It's a four-player game about midlife crisis. It's a man who loves a ridiculous challenge. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll be talking about that. It's still a work in progress, but we've had a go at it. And it's interesting. So we're going to be talking a bit about what Festival is and why we felt it was so special at the end of this podcast. But we're going to, you know, we're going to give you your pudding first. Let's talk about some gosh darn board games. Pudding first. It's just naughty. We're going to start talking about Hansa Teutonica. Mm. And if that sounds like a boring game... Well, that was a lovely sonorous mm from mm. you there. Hansa Teutonica. And if that sounds like a boring name for a boring German-style game, it kind of is. But, hey, this is by Andreas Stedding, a famous German designer who most recently did Gugong, which we did mm. a video review of on the site just recently. Had a lot of fun filming that. And uh, Mr. Stedding is responsible for some absolute classics. You One said of, Mr. Stedding there as if he was your teacher. Mr. Stedding! I love Mr. Stedding! <laughs> I think he... I mean, you can look at his uh, his games on no, board. You sounded like you were in trouble. You didn't sound like you were admiring him. Oh. You sounded like you were in a lot of trouble and you knew what you'd done and Mr. Stedding was very angry. Well, mostly, he, he probably would be angry because I didn't do very well in Hands of Teutonica. No, and we didn't play it till quite recently. Uh, no, but hey, well, we didn't play it because it's out of print. It's still out of print, but yeah. I'm just going to come out here on the podcast and say... I really want it to get reprinted. Yeah, what a lovely game. What a fantastic game. Uh, It's a very, very plain-looking thing. So what this game is, is you all... uh 
basically you're going to play a Euro game from 2007 or so, which is to say you represent German trading houses uh, and you're going to be spending your turn placing little uh, wooden tokens uh, between two points. But but sometimes they're little square tokens. Sometimes they're round tokens. Mm. And the round tokens are far more rare than the square ones but also have the capacity to unlock some of the most interesting bonuses. I feel like I was on the have way you, to making this sound interesting. Have you ever played a Euro game? Would uh, you like to come to my house? No, I'm sorry. I'm. You know, we used to take the mick out of this stuff, but we just increasingly love dry German Euro games. But no, you, you make it sound exciting. Okay, here I go. Here's. Uh, I'm going to give it a shot. You can do it. So on your turn, you're going to be placing uh, a handful of these wooden tokens, which may be square or maybe the big circular merchants. The good boys. Um, between uh, spaces around the boards. Now, when you complete a route, so let's say you've put a, one of your cubes on every space between two little towns, mm-hmm. then you get to pick one of the rewards in either of the two towns, okay? And mm-hmm. these rewards are either um, essentially a little merchant house that's going to score you points, or they are a permanent improvement to your ability to, for example, uh, place cubes, mm-hmm. number of cubes you can place a turn, the number of points you get for connecting routes, all of these... Um, sort of dry but in the context of such a simple game unbelievably exciting bonuses uh-huh. but where the game is is you might now think okay so it's on my turn i can place four cubes i'll just put four cubes between these two towns Fill up one route done, done. no what you want to do here in Hansi Teutonica is you want to place your cubes wherever you think other people will need them because anyone else can for an action dislodge one of your cubes so if matt's between like i don't know hamburg and other German town, uh-huh. and I want to fill up that route. Matt has a cube there. I have to dislodge that, which means I have to pay a little extra. But most importantly, in dislodging Matt's cube, it becomes two cubes for Matt. It's compensation time, Susan. That he can place on routes adjacent to this. Mm. So suddenly now you've got a game where everyone's trying to completing routes to complete routes, and literally every player is trying to get in literally every other player's way. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's magical. It's so simple and so good of just being like looking at the board and going, where are people going to go? Because if you can spend the whole game just basically trying to work out exactly what everyone's going to do, and rather than just trying to build routes of your own from scratch, just just basically squatting on other people's pre-planned oh. roads, you can you just be placing a huge amount of things. You could be placing down loads of stuff if, everywhere. If you do an expert job of getting in everyone's way, you're placing twice as many cubes as everyone else from being dislodged all the time. But, but oh, the lovely uh, risk-reward there is that, let's say Matt puts... Oh, okay. let's, let's say Matt's doing really well. Let's say Matt's doing quite well, and there is a four-cube uh, path between uh-huh. two towns. Matt could put a cube there and just get in my way a little bit, but no, Matt's smart. He puts two cubes there. Mm. So, oh my God, I'm going to have to pay through the nose. But what that means is I then look at that path and go, nah, sod this. This is the desire. I'm, go- I'm going nowhere near I'm that. I'm leaving. I don't, I'm not going to put any more cubes there. But what's great for that is every time players just look at your roots and go, no, I'm not going to dislodge that person. That means more and more of your cubes get stuck on the board. Yes. And suddenly, no one's dislodging you, which means you're just putting cubes on routes that nobody wants. Yeah, so basically, there's a wonderful twist where at some point during your play, if you're going for this mean-blocking constant tactic, you go from being somebody who has a finger in every pie to discovering that all of the pies are full of superglue. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, oh, no. <coughs> and yeah, that kind of happened to me. I had a route early on where I thought, he's going to want to finish that and pop down the guy. There was only one guy, but he just thought, no, I'm not going to finish it then. And I just didn't get that guy back for like 90% of the game. And I was like, just, are you going to bloody finish that route? Because I didn't care enough about it to remove all of his. 
Um, but I really, I really wanted that guy back. I was really, really jonesing for an extra guy. You just want so much. I mean, what's nuts about this is because it's a Euro game from a while back. Like we're so used to German style management games, which is what a Euro game is. If you're new to the podcast, um, having like a ton of components and a ton of mechanics. But what's beautiful about Hansa Teutonica is you open up the box and it's just a board, mm-hmm. uh, little player boards for everybody, a bunch of cubes. And that's it. There's yeah. no cards. There's no randomized board setup. It's just this really solid, simple product. Yep. It's quite easy to teach as well. Yeah. I mean, I got so much time really as well for having a game with player board with rules on it that you just have, you fill it up with the cubes that are all basically the same. And then you remove them one at a time to put them on the board. And when you do that, you get the powers underneath it. Like, yeah, it, it's such a simple thing. It's not sexy. Like, nothing sexy it, it about it. It is no- kind of sexy. But yeah, I think now it's like, it's a weird thing of I really would love to see a reprint of this game. And yes, in some ways it could do with a lick of paint, but in some ways it's quite classical in a way that's nice. But then at the same time, it's like, you kind of think, would they all be different shapes and, you know... Oh, no, I think they'd, they'd yeah, have, I guess to, you have keep to keep it, it simple. But yeah. I just think if it was designed now, it would be, how can you differentiate all these different like i don't know i don't know i, I don't th- know i think it's it's just so clean that any new designer would want to keep that cleanliness no i meant i i meant in the in the kind of very conceptual idea of it was a new game being designed now oh yeah no if it was a new game being designed now it would have like a module to randomize the board setup it would have a i don't know unique player powers some i don't know it's it's one of those weird things you can kind of understand as well like why so many games of that era were just like hey some people wrote trading roads because uh, yeah like it, it conveys that like it doesn't convey any of the other theming in terms of the era like technically you're making mon- was you making monasteries oh at some no, point? no monastery monks no you're uh, you're there doing was something with monks wasn't no there? no that you're just putting trading houses down what about what were the circles then uh merchants merchants oh i thought they were like which raises the question of what know. are the squares <laughs> yeah because i know right just guys you pay to stand in the road so someone can't finish it's walking down really it. not clear it doesn't matter it's a general thing it's basically just like uh ticket to ride with teeth yeah <laughs> being like hey you want to build that road cool i'm just gonna stand here and you can pay me money and i'll leave you know like they've put out those um ticket to ride my first journey which are the new ticket to rides for like seven year olds this is the ticket to ride my last journey <laughs> that's exactly what i was gonna say <laughs> but my goodness i've the last thing i'll say about it is and I, I heard about this from the so very wrong about games podcast but i've when they were talking about hansi jesonica mm. but i've never played a uh or i struggle to remember a game where i from turn one wanted to do like eight different things yeah. with about three actions because you want the things you want the the buffs that improve your player board mm-hmm. but you also want to block the spaces that everyone else is going to be going for you mm-hmm. also want points there are crazy points if you manage to collect the le- connect the left and right side of the board so ideally you're kind of working towards that from turn yeah. one like you your turn is over in an instant which gives the game incredible speed because on your turn you're like okay i want to do five six seven eight things but my gosh, I want to do this one thing and most of all. And there's also the whole system about the fact that whenever a town like pops because a road's been next to it, it's the person who currently owns that thing that gets the bonus. And the that person, gets points, yeah. That gets points, and then the points... And then it means if you keep filling up with your things, then if it's a tie, it's the last thing to get placed. Which means basically it's, it's also a kind of area control game, really, about like yep. just being like, I've got to dominate these bits of road, and then I'm going to be able to do this. And... It's got a lot going on, but it does a lot with very little. Yeah, you know what we always say about Skull, where it's like the most game packed into the least rules? Mm-hmm. Hansi Teutonica is not 
a particularly simple game to learn or teach. No. But it packs more than any other Euro game I can think of into as few components as possible. Mm, yeah. And I would love to see it reprinted. Love, 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 love! Let's talk quickly about Deep Blue next, which is going to be announced next year from a sizable French publisher. And this is from a design duo uh, who most recently worked on Copenhagen. Asger Granerud, who you may remember from Flamme Rouge, and uh, Daniel Pedersen, who is working with Asger on uh, just about everything now, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's deep a powerhouse of a team. Yeah, and Deep Blue is a game where players uh, control tiny little uh, f- sort of boats that are going to be exploring the deep blue sea Mm -hmm. and it just had a couple of mechanics in it that we really liked yeah i mean basically the way it works is you shoot off into the sea and you find sea prospects it's like traditional sea mining you go around you think this little sea prospect is mine you plop your boat on it and then eventually somebody is going to declare a big cool treasure dive so it's not a game where you go off and then dive immediately it's a game where you go find a patch of sea and go hmm I think there's going to be some exciting underwater treasure here. And then you basically scout out the best location for finding some goods. And there's different sorts of things you can do in terms of like, oh, I think this water has less sharks in it. Or, oh, I think this water has less of a chance of drowning. I don't know. There's, there's, or like, there's, maybe there's going to be more gold in this area, etc. But you don't actually always get to control the dive itself. So the way it works is eventually somebody in that area activates it and goes, look, I'm going to dive here. And then anybody who is in that area on a spot can then they have to join the dive then and they will get the bonus attribute they got if they were already there. But also people nearby can quickly go, yep, I'm coming. And they can motor their boat over to that patch uh, in this weird world in which everybody has to go diving for treasure at the same time. And it's a conceit that doesn't make sense, but it's so much fun because, <laughs> because it means that if you're nearby or a couple of spaces away, you can be like, I'm coming, I'm coming, wait for me. And you can motor your boat over there and you won't get any of the bonuses because all of the good spots are already gone and you're not eligible for them because you didn't scout it out earlier. But then the person who does the dive plays a push their luck game of pulling out cues from a bag, uh, which have been affected. And you kind of know what's in the bag based on things people have been buying from the shops. And then you just are at the whims of whoever is pulling things out of the bag and they keep going until they decide to stop. So this is where you bring in the card management. Everyone has a hand of cards which might allow them to get more points out of gold or might let them avoid sharks. Mm, Or maybe they have like specifically a card that lets them get loads of points if a pink comes out. And pinks are useless to everyone else but every time they're on on any dive they're just there going pink, 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 pink. Draw a pink out the bag, draw a pink out the bag. (laughs) So the main mechanic here is that if uh, two sharks or two uh, oxygen cubes come up then it means you have to come up because there are sharks or Mm -hmm. because you're going to get the bends. But that means if you're controlling the dive and you have a card that means you're protected from the second shark, Mm. you are now playing a very weird push-your-luck game where you're pulling out gold and everyone's going, hooray, but you don't want to pull out gold. You want to put out just enough sharks that everybody else who does not have shark protection has to leave the dive and you get all of the rewards. Yeah. Which is, I mean, so really the reason we're talking about Deep Blue is because we like the idea of a push-your-luck game like Quacks of Quedlinburg, but where your decision to push your luck affects everybody in different ways. Yeah, and having people begging you around the table to not go any further whilst you look in their eyes and keep going. 
keep going. It's really interesting. I didn't like uh, gel with that well because I was playing the game wrong in our demo of it. <laughs> and it meant the whole time I was like, I don't know, this just doesn't seem to work. And at the end I was like, oh no, I, I completely got a core mechanic wrong and had a. that's why I didn't have a good time. But I, that idea as a core thing, very, very cool. Yeah, that was pretty lovely. So let's uh, sort of gloss over Deep Blue because, you know, I didn't get on with it that well either. Um, also, it's not announced. Let's talk about something that you and I did really get along with from the same design team, which is also coming out next year. Let's talk about Auto. Auto is a game of cars and the drivers who love them. Yeah. And it's fascinating to see the designers of Flamme Rouge come and approach the uh, as-of-yet-untouched world of cars that what? drive around on tarmac. Has there ever been a board game before where cars drive around a track? I don't think there's been a game before. I don't think, yeah, no video game or board game. Um, it's just such an unusual idea to have lots of cars on the same roads all racing one another. I should jump in right here and say that actually Flamme Rouge was designed uh, by Asger Granerud uh, alone. Alone. Uh, but now he's working with Daniel as this... Uh, he was so lonely. But now it's okay. Now he's got friends. He's got a friend. So this game shares a lot of DNA with Flamme Rouge. Uh, mm -hmm. Flamme Rouge being a game of racing bicycles that shut up and sit down. Ruddy loves. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a game where you play cards that dictate your movement, but you don't want to be leading the pack because then you get tired and you don't want to f move so slowly that you fall out of the pack because then you're tired and alone and in last yeah. place. So Auto is then borrowing some of that DNA for a game about car racing. Um, what we've got here is we still have a, everyone's car is a deck of cards. You're still playing cards to move your cards forward. But unlike Flamme Rouge, when you play a movement card, it doesn't then leave the deck. Instead, uh, Auto is a game about managing damage yeah basically managing the wear and tear on your vehicle some of which happens naturally some of which happens because you're being really cool <laughs> and basically uh, it's a lot about just cycling through and knowing what's happening and rather than having the kind of you obviously with flam rouge you do know the composition of your deck but it feels a lot more about having a small deck that you cycle through a lot and really looking at the probabilities and the main difference is Unlike in Flamme Rouge, where if you say you're coming up to a hill and then you end up playing like a big card, then it's a waste because you can only go up a hill so fast. Or if you're going down a hill and you play a big card, it's a waste because you could have played a low card and got the speed boost. In this, it has corners. Yes. And you're going real fast, which means that you basically need to be able to get to a certain speed to be able to turn the corner without just going off the track yep. and spinning there's a, out. There's a board game classic, which I don't believe you've played, but some of our more venerable listeners may have, which is uh, Formula D, yeah. an award-winning German game which had that same mechanic of when you approach a corner, you have to stop in that corner a number of times. Mm -hmm. um, and that mechanic I'm, is something I love, although Formula D isn't a game I love, so I'm so happy to see something similar sharp in Auto. But the interesting thing about this and the way you control your speed and the big difference is that cars have more more powerful gears than bikes. And again, it's another this, fact. And this was in Formula D as well. Yeah. So the fact that you're moving up and down and using different amounts of cards, it's basically Flamme Rouge, but sometimes maybe you play five cards. <laughs> uh, which, that uh, sounds insane. It does sound insane, and it might be fine, because um, the wonderful thing as well is that they've added a little bit of additional spice in the form of a boost dice. Oh, yes. And it means that... Let's just say you're looking at this and you're in the right gear, but you wish you were a gear higher and you're only going eight. But if you could go nine spaces this turn, then that would be amazing. That would mean that you're just behind the next person's yep. car, which would mean you can use slipstreaming to slip in front of the whole pack. And you would have just got around in the perfect position to then start slowing down for that corner. It's just ideal. However, if you were to get 10 
that would be disastrous because <laughs> it would it would actually push your car into the edge of damage and you would basically spin out. Or if you get 11, oh, that's just terrible. Everything's bad. So then you have the bonus to be able to do, all right, I'm going to spend a damage to roll this dice, which will then move you one, two, or three extra spaces. But you have to take it. Like, you take the damage and then you roll dice. And if that movement is too much, then, yeah, you've you've just caused yourself more damage. So that, that having that extra thing of being like, I don't have the cards here to do exactly what I want, and being able to push your luck... I really enjoyed, and I really enjoyed the framing of the damage and the fact that um, at the start of the game as well, there was a little bit of a, a kind of uh, flavor crafting in terms of being able to choose a couple of powers that are specific to your deck yep. um, and then work with that. I went for a combination of things with the idea of like, I'm going to mess up this car. I'm going to drive it too fast. I'm going to rag it, but then I'm also going to be able to like repair it on the go more easily. I don't understand how that works in the fiction. Honestly, one of the pieces of feedback I gave to them was if you're making a car game, it makes a lot of sense to have like, oh, the car gets damaged and then it gets repaired. However, because there are no pit stops yeah. in Alto, there's the thing of like, oh, my car's really falling apart. But if you're in last place or you just drive slow, then your car gets better. Yeah. So I'm wondering if for the finished product, it should be called like strain or stress yeah, rather like than... Drive a strain rather than damage makes a lot more sense. But um, yeah, because it's like, I'm, I healed my car again. <laughs> yeah. It's like... It's a World of Warcraft sort of buff. But, but yeah, I just enjoyed the thematicness of just pushing my driver to the edge and taking it really, having really hard lines. And it became incredibly tense when it got to like the final lap and there was two more like little chicane to get through. Um, I was really concentrating hard and found myself crunching the numbers in a way I, I never have with Flam Rouge of being like, okay, well, if I play this and this and this and then get this back. and Because you do, having a limited set of cards and a discard pile that you can look through, is it means it's not very difficult for even idiots like me to start working on the probabilities. You know, it does... like, what do I need to happen this round? It has some stuff in common with um, automobiles, the uh, bag building. Yeah. I'm not going to explain that term because we're not talking about automobiles, but um, a lovely game of building up and deconstructing your car, going round and round a track. Um, automobiles never really got much, uh, you know, pick up in terms of people buying it, which is mm -hmm. a shame because it's a lovely game. But um, hopefully people will be interested in Auto because we had just a lovely time. It's really cool. And But the, the deck building uh, it has where when you take a bit of damage, you deal yourself cards off the top of your damage deck. And initially these are cards which essentially make you move at a random speed. Mm -hmm. But if you keep taking damage and you keep putting these cards in, the final two cards in the deck are major damage, yeah. which, is, which you can still repair. But it's the lovely thing of... Um, deck building is a is a genre we're all familiar with but this is deck building and deconstructing as well you're mm. constantly putting dangerous cards into your deck but also taking them back out yeah so yeah you can the minor ones are fine they're just you end up getting rid of them in scenarios where you think oh, i can afford to go one to three extra here it doesn't really make a difference but the major ones don't do anything you just can't get rid of them out of your hand without repairing so they're narrowing your options so yeah so you can just keep burning out but it means if you if you get it wrong and your calculations go wrong or your gambles don't pay off then you just end up having less cards and, and it's less not options this is not a complicated game either i feel like we're describing it and it sounds like there's tons of mechanics this is a simple game i can see the rule book being like four or five pages it was so exciting and i really enjoyed the fact that it it really wonderfully and maybe other racing games have done this but i really enjoyed how much it captured the thing of Yes, thinking long-term about the track, but also just, just thinking about that next corner. As soon as you turn the corner, you're like, right, planning for the next corner. How yeah. can I do this? And and having the feeling when it went slightly wrong of just like the your heart dropping in your chest as you realize you're not going to take the corner well. And when you took it smoothly, it just felt glorious. You yeah. felt like you were flying. It's that thing of coming around a corner and realizing, oh, you're not in third gear, you're in second, which means... 
you'll, yeah, you'll be able to handle the corner up ahead, but you're not going to get enough speed down the straight. There was a point where I took a corner towards the second lap so well that I was honestly amazed that anyone caught up with me. Because in my mind, I was like, I'm out of here. You guys just lost this race. And then when everyone, when people caught up with me again, I was like, how's that possible? Yeah, I took that corner so perfectly. There was a guy who flipped his car, uh, or yeah. who, span, who span out. Yeah, spinning uh, one, out seems bad. One of the designers, but actually managed to catch up with us. Yeah, but, which we had an interesting discussion with the designers, where I'm like, oh, well, how is that? You know, how is that balance that he spun out and still caught up with this? But then they explained to me that, yes, he caught up with the pack. Yeah, but, but he didn't win. But the state of the car and his cards was such that he was never going to win. Yeah. Which was which was pretty interesting. Um, but Auto, which is coming out next year, mm-hmm. um, so that should certainly be on your radar, is not the only racing game that we played no. at Festival. We played Flam Rouge's Big Box Campaign expansion. Mm. If you like those sweet bicycle boys, those cute little bi boys, then mm-hmm. my goodness... This campaign box is going to uh, blow your mind a little bit. Yeah, it's a lot going on. Yes. So first things first, we've got now uh, rider powers, as mm. if your bicyclists were superheroes. Some of which were explained to us by uh, the designer Asga. Like they're all real bicycling terms. Yeah, like but they you could se- be a squirrel. But not a real squirrel. Or a grimper. Or a grimper. Uh, Grimping ain't easy. Yes, as we said about 400 times during our game. <laughs> it's too much fun to say. Uh, so all this means is that you're going to pick for each of your cyclists some special traits that they have, which means basically you'll be removing two to three cards from their deck mm-hmm. and replacing them with two to three better cards. Mm. Uh, allowing you to... like, So one of your cyclists might be a specialist at... Cycling away from the pack without letting people draft behind them. Yeah, so they can't slipstream that guy. He's too slick. He's just too slippery. I think that was the squirrel, wasn't it? I, maybe. And then there was the people who could basically pop on the side. So yes. it was like, hey, oh no, there's two people in that slot, but it's fine. I'm just going to cycle on the grass next to you. So they can just <laughs> never get jammed up. They yep. just cycle on the grass. Which is a thing of beauty, yeah. People who are really good at going up hills or people who are really good at going down hills. And all of this within the context of normal Flam Rouge is not enormously exciting. It make, takes a game that's pretty simple and light and makes it more complicated. Yeah. But when you're playing a campaign, and this is the main thing that the uh, the box adds... When you can look at like four or five races coming up in sequence, because in Flam Rouge, that's as simple as putting out four or five little cards mm-hmm. and you can immediately see all the details of the race. Yeah. You might pick a Grimper, which is what I did, the mountain climbing person being yeah. like, this person's going to be pretty useless for like two thirds of the tour. Yeah. But then in that final third of the tour with all those hills, yeah. hopefully he's going to be all right. Changes the texture of the game completely as well, because it's already interesting, I think, to have a game whereby, yeah, you can burn through your cards, you can end up really exhausted and win the game. But then next race, you're going to be in quite a bad way. But then to even have it to be like, all right, well, look, this race is not mine. I'm not even really going to try and win it. I just want to have it so that when I cross the line, I'm not exhausted. Yeah, I'm just going to cross the line and get myself ready for next race. And then next race, I'm going to just boss it. Or, you know, you screw up again and that's fine. Yeah, and it's like, it's just an interesting contrast to the kind of Mario Kart school of racing where it's like, if you don't win every single of these four races, (laughs) you're dead to me. (laughs) Like, the idea of like coming last is like, oh, that's the end of the world. Where it's like, it's actually fine. Like... You know, if you've got a plan, if you know that this race is going to be the one where you're weakest, but you can dominate in the other ones, it was really interesting. Um, yeah. It was also our first time getting to play with um, an expansion that has been released, which is the Mateo expansion, weather. which yeah. adds weather. Yeah, and I found that quite interesting because I read the rules for Mateo online, and the way that weather affects the game is relatively minor, and it mm. seemed that way even to me as someone who plays a lot of Flam Rouge, whereby. 
you put, oh, I've just realized that all the people listen to the podcast and laughing every time I say whereby, I just gave them another point. Do, do they? Do people, I didn't know people laughed at you for that. Uh, where, I know they laugh at you about saying email on the Twitch streams. Yeah. And I know they laugh at you. Uh, burying the lead. Burying the lead is something we both do, which I don't know why people find that so funny. but It's because we say it about once every five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But So the way that weather works is that you put out these little tokens for every possible stretch of the race, then you flip them all face up, and some of them might add weather. Oh, when, no, it's wet. It's Well, wet is actually pretty dramatic, Matthew. It's yeah. more like, right. oh, no, it's, it's windy. a tailwind. It's a bit windy, or it's bad windy or good windy. Crosswinds versus tailwinds, yeah. That's the ones. There's rain. And then there is something else. But so I thought it was just like fair. Fair no, because everything's fair. Oh, everything's fair. Except yeah. for It's not Quinn's. That's not the way the world works. I mean there might be I don't know. Nothing's uh, fair. I can't remember either. Um but yeah. The, the crosswind, tailwind. Yeah, so fascinating kinds of winds. But stop. Let me get out the rules. <laughs> what I mean is what these mechanics do is with a tailwind, if you start on that space, you draw an extra card. Whereas a crosswind means that, oh no, crosswind means you can't slipstream and then headwind. Yes. Which means you draw one less card. So mechanically, these are very small effects that only may or may not show up. Rain is the only really dangerous one because it can mean like massive multi-bicycle pileups. Yeah. And yet when playing with them, because Flamme Rouge is such a simple game where one choice might make the difference between you coming second or yep. third or fourth, yep. um, it playing with weather actually did change the game. Oh, huge. And I'm absolutely picking it up because it means that when you add things like Breakaway where players bid extra cards in order to start at the front of the pack, uh-huh. that's so much more important if, for example, you know there's a rainstorm coming up ahead. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. We really messed up in the first race. I think I did anyway because I bid quite highly for the... The starting point with the breakaway and then the weather conditions in the first section just meant that that was really stupid. everyone just caught up everyone with you, caught yeah. up with me immediately and i was like oh god <laughs> like, i've just wasted nine points of speed and and yeah like having those decisions or even like having the difficult crunch of like um there was another race where there was rain on a weird corner just after like a horrible little mini chicane and uh i myself and someone else just shot ahead and just really burnt ourselves out with exhaustion and then again it ended up meaning i didn't win the race um, although we did discover at the end of the campaign, I was missing all of my special cards. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I'd made my deck wrong. I'd taken out the cards and then hadn't replaced them with good ones, uh, which explained why I kept losing quite dramatically, was, even though I was trying real hard. While everyone else had made their cyclists like various kinds of superheroes, you'd basically taken <laughs> one of your cyclists and removed one of their feet. Yeah, just a little foot. Anyway, um, it was a really exciting decision to be like, I think I'm actually going to push ahead now, knowing that people are going to catch me up and it's going to be bad for me but just because it's not worth the risk of getting caught in that rain. And it was so frustrating because when it came to it, this horrible, fateful patch of wet concrete, everyone just very neatly came through in single file and nothing happened. That's kind of what I love about rain as well, is that <sighs> rain adds all these extra rules that means if the if the pack gets really bunched up, someone might fall over. If multiple people fall over, then... If you're playing, we were playing with six people, were we? Yes, yeah, so 12 cyclists. 12 cyclists. There was a good chance that a lot of people were going to fall over. But it's funny that... And nobody did. We were all playing with that in mind and all of us playing different cards to make sure it didn't happen. But because we all did that, it didn't happen. It doesn't mean it didn't change the race. Yeah. You know? But everyone could have been trying to play cards so it didn't happen and then it could have still happened because everyone had played low cards and life would be like, oh no, after you. Oh no. I mean, it was just, it was pure happenstance that there wasn't. But it was that thing of going, oh no. I'd really, I'd kind of, I'd banked on there being a horrendous wet crash. Behind you. Uh, yeah. Behind me uh, as part of my strategy. But again, it's like, I think it's interesting that 
it's one of those games that is so simple that people can look at it and go, there's no strategy here. And it's not true. Like there really is. There are choices. But these extra bits of additions, as well as stretching out Flam Rouge across multiple games in one evening, uh, really just does change it and does make it like wins and losses of being like not trying to win every race. Yeah. Like, you know, and sometimes thinking, is it wise for me to continue to win every race? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's like, try. Like I think all of the expansions for Flamme Rouge have been so good because it, it's what we want from expansions, where the base game is entirely strong by itself. You don't need any of it. But if you want it, then all of it makes the game just that little bit richer, that little bit more complicated. The last thing that this big expansion that's coming out, oh, I want to say maybe later this year, the big Flamme Rouge campaign expansion ads, is Roundabouts, which... Oh. They're so funny. So, gosh, we had to have this explained to us on one of the evenings at Festival when we were drinking with Asga, the designer of Flam Rouge. He was like, I've added roundabouts. And he saw my blank expression as someone who doesn't watch professional cycling. And then he said, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to show you a YouTube video. And he had to show me on his phone. And I watched it happen in a real cycle race and still didn't understand it. But the way that what roundabouts model in professional cycling is... When you have a roundabout and you're coming at it, then you can either go left or right around the roundabout, right? Now, you break the usual laws of the road. And yes, you can because be like, I'm not going to go around this roundabout as I usually would. Which is like clockwise or because whatever. Because there are no cars here. The cyclists are kings. So, but a roundabout doesn't mean you come across, you come out at the, just on the, exactly the other side of it. You're going to go to the left or right, which mm -hmm. means there is a short way around the roundabout and a long way. Mm -hmm. So what the new roundabout track pieces in Flam Rouge do is they split the ordinarily like two lane race into lanes that like a left lane, which everyone wants to go in because it's only two spaces long. Yep. And a right lane, which is like four or five spaces long, which represents the fact that in professional cycling, it's yeah, too jammed up. You have to go around the other way. Exactly. And that in professional cycling means you might only lose like a second or two seconds. Yeah. But that's but enough to lose you the race. That's enough to lose the race. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of an abstracted piece. But what this, the way this work, works mechanically <laughs> is that the pack comes up to a roundabout and everyone takes the uh, short lane. But if it's full and you would lose movement, rather than losing movement and braking, you keep your momentum and go the long way around, yeah. which is, for whatever reason, side-splittingly funny. It's so funny because it's just watching. It's that classic thing of like, it takes the thing of Flamme Rouge of, of taking it in turns to move your people forward and hoping that the kind of card you've spent isn't a waste. But rather than it being like, oh, damn it, I played a six and I only moved five. It's like, I played a six and now because everyone else has already filled up all the slots, I have to go around the long way on the roundabout. Yeah, and it, it's. I think it's funny because you're often the only person doing yes. <laughs> it's like it's just me it's just a weird like it's a weird randomized kind of you know humans for better and worse like in group out group and it's like we all took the shortcut and you had to go the long way <laughs> and it's just something about it that's mean and silly but it's also the fact that when you do it, it's just like oh no i'm going around the bloody road i think it's route. also because you have to take exhaustion as well yeah because it's you're like by yourself it's just very funny and um i mean we found the whole thing very funny it, it's weird how when you play in a campaign, it does really take on a more Mario Kart kind of tenor, even without any silliness and the fact that, like, you know, you can keep losing and losing. I, just, I didn't really care. Like, it was that thing of a guy, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. This race is going to be mine. And like, <laughs> oh, no, it's not. I think it's the fact that you, the point when you realize your loss isn't completely pointless until like the final race when it's like yeah losing just means i think lost. Like it, i think it might also benefit um from the fact that with with each race the only thing you get points for loosely there's also a, a, a overall time medal mm -hmm. but basically you only get medals for coming first second or third mm -hmm. that's not the players who come first second or third. that's the cyclists and because everyone has two cyclists it means yeah in a big game probably only like 20 percent of the players are going to get points for any given round mm -hmm. which means 
like if I play a Euro game, I'm worried about coming last. I'm worried about coming fifth. Yeah. With the Flam Rouge campaign, it's Comes like... point, it doesn't matter. Well, it's it's more like there are players who are winning. There's the player who's in second. Everyone else, pff, they're kind of doing about as well as each other because they're not in first, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it kind of takes a little bit of the pressure off. And it's it's like you say, it's more like Mario Kart. Yeah, it is more like Mario, Mario Kart. Mario Kart fact, doesn't make a big deal of who comes fifth and sixth. No, it doesn't care. It only cares about who came first and who comes eighth, usually. But really, it's first, second and third. And yeah. Nobody cares about anything else. Exactly. Which is kind of like, that's exactly what happens here. And you just, you shoot off, you try to win. And you're like, oh my gosh, I might win this race. And then you run out of steam and somebody shoots past and you're like, I'm not going to win. And now it doesn't matter. Like, I can come last and does not matter. Before we move on to our big game of the month, let's talk about our littlest game of the month. Let's talk about That's Not Lemonade. That's Not Lemonade. Which is almost a really amazing... Like, I, I want to say it's almost a great game. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true. Well, but... I, I didn't play it, so I don't know. Yeah, you did. No, I didn't. You were part of the team. We I were was sitting at the table. Oh, no, I was technically part of your team. <laughs> But every yeah. time I turned around to talk to somebody, I turned around to discover you made a decision. I had no idea why and what was going on. Oh, okay. We te- you technically, technically, I played, but I couldn't really tell you. I mean, I think I know how the game works, but I don't know anything about it. Okay. Well, you can talk about the art design later because you like that. The art design was fun. Yeah. Okay. So this is from Tuesday Night Games, who make Two Rooms and a Boom. Um, it's a tiny little card game about drinking pee. Uh, you all play uh, kids who run lemonade stands and you're all competing for business and the way that you've competed is not by like lowering prices or making a better product. It's by peeing in various cups and mm. uh, people accidentally drinking it. This is all a thematic wrapper for a very stupid, very simple push your luck game. Um, th- each round will be won by whoever draws the most lemons, okay? So on your turn, you draw a card from a deck and look at it. Mm. And then on future go rounds, you can choose to either hit and take another card or uh, essentially stay, and the amount of lemons you've got will be your score, but it will be secret. So it's kind of like blackjack, but with a very small deck of cards. It's exactly like blackjack, but the reason the small deck of cards is important is because it then means that the probability of everything becomes quite accessible. Yes. So in round one, there's something like, uh, I'm inventing this, but it's something like eight lemons, a couple of double lemons, Mm. um, four ice cubes, which are worth zero points, but let you look like you've got a lemon, and then... Piss. Five or six piss cards. Mm. Um, and if you draw that, you're just out. You knock over the little plastic cup that you've got that the game comes with. Yeah. Um, you also turn that cup upside down when you're sticking. So there's some like visual like uh, telegraphing stuff. And that's it. On your turn, you go, yep, I'll have a card or I won't. And you draw a lemon and go, yes. Or you draw P and go, damn it. And then you're out. Mm-hmm. So the game... At, at where it exists at all is from when... like Let's say Matt's drawn two cards and I've got like two lemons Mm -hmm. so if i uh because matt's first clockwise from the dealer if i pass and matt reveals that he's got two lemons then his score is better than mine because he's closer clockwise than the dealer Mm -hmm. unless matt's holding an ice cube Mm. and if he is then i've actually got the winning score and then i'll stop and then matt will might think i've got two lemons or a lemon and a double lemon and matt might hit and hit and then matt drinks some piss and is out Mm. and i win Mm. so it's like a push your luck game so no, having ice no cubes, that is, it is a push. So having ice cubes just makes your hand weaker. No, ice cubes just do nothing. They just do nothing. Okay, fine. I got it, I got it. I got but it. they look like a lemon. That's, they, but they might be a lemon. Yep, and that's entirely it. But then where the game comes in is, in order to win properly, like Skull, you need to have won multiple rounds. Mm-hmm. But uh, part of the humor and the silliness in the game comes from not just drinking piss, but from... Every time a player wins a round, they take a lemon, which means that 16-card tight deck constantly has mm. changing probability. That's the way markets work. So lemons at, disappearing. As the game gets more tense, uh, there's l- l- less lemons and more players getting knocked out. Huh. 
Interesting. So it has a timer to it. Yeah, it does. And and a, a, a sense of chance that humans will kind of struggle with because just as they're getting more excited and more optimistic about their chances, then... They're getting worse and worse. Odds, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's funny because uh, I watched you guys play this and I, I kind of understood it roughly. Um, and I really like the style of it, and I like the presentation. I like the box. The, like cards the, are, the cards are pretty the lovely. Fact that you get these tiny little cups. They're like, I don't know if that's a thing in America, but they're like shot-sized versions of the little red cups that people... I, I know they're a thing in America. The little red cups are an American thing. I've seen films. <laughs> but I don't know if like the little ones are a common thing, or if they were made for this or whatever, like, or if they're a thing you see very often. But they're very cute, having these little tiny versions of the, the big american red cup things that americans love to have and drink from and do beer pong with yeah i've seen american films there you go you're very cultured there was something about the whole package i found really interesting <clears throat> and i found it really interesting to watch people who were a mixture of game designers or game critics or people who knew about games uh playing after a few drinks this game and trying to dissect what the game was and basically determining that there really wasn't much game to it but i have to say as a counterpoint i think so much of the the silliness of the idea and the the fun of the components yes just made it come to life and it's like it's it's one of those interesting things where it's like yeah as a game i don't know if it's a great game don't know if there is much of a game there but watching people play it was tremendous fun watching people mime to drink from the cup tiny cups and then go it was like that's somebody pretending to drink wee from a tiny little cup that is inherently a lot of fun yeah i don't have much to say about it because it is yeah, what, yeah, yeah. it is what it is but i i would almost like to use it as a case study if i was teaching game design you know i mm -hmm. put it in front of students and say why does this work and why does it not work because yeah. yeah it's such a the box is so lovely the the core idea of it there's definitely something there i think for me i don't know i think all the things that work about it actually exist outside of traditional game design i think it's like you, it's like jedi stuff it's like you've got to stop <laughs> trying to move the spaceship and you've got to look even the simplicity actually no i might need you to explain that point a bit all more. right well it's like you can you, you can think about probabilities and we can think about like the, the is it like a card game is it like blackjack but i think one of the key things about it that's really fun and really cool is the fact that when you're out you knock over your cup yes how often you get a game where like you are specifically told that you're allowed to in part of your failure to knock something over and to knock something over which make then bounces and makes a fun sound and and you can't really break yeah it's so simple how like th these things don't necessarily make it like a good game but they definitely from what i saw uh made for a box which just uh created temporarily for 20 minutes a really fun uh experience yeah i mean we were kind of having fun in spite of the game not necessarily because of it yeah uh, to but, some extent but that's what i mean is like this is this is the point where it becomes like you know a, an interesting question really that we can't there's no answer to is if you've got a box of things uh, and then you have fun with that box of things even maybe not because even if you're of, kind of making fun of it even if you're making fun of it and ha just having fun with the components yeah i think that was the, the high point for the game actually you've now helped me to realize was like turning to like the pr like prestigious uh, danish game designers who i was sat with and i took me taking out this review copy and then they would take their turn or they'd lose and i'd be like there's not a game here right and they'd be like eh, no not really but that conversation in and of itself was kind of funny yeah no i mean i was just watching other people as well who were just people were having fun and it's like it's it's like you kind of question like what matters well obviously I, to, uh, to us as critics it matters um but uh 
Yeah, no, no there, there is. Interesting. I think card games it can exist in a really interesting woolly space. Specifically, I'm thinking about um, theming card games. Like, to what extent is Arboretum a great card game because it's about trees, mm. like trees that actually fit the kind of slow pace of the game and yet make the toothiness of Arboretum funnier? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm uh, reviewing uh, Peep Mats at the minute, a game about little songbirds, which is birds jostling for seed and trying to avoid crows. We've all been there, and again, it's like there's something funny about a squirrel stealing your seeds yeah yeah it, i mean with this is like it's an interesting one because i think with party games particularly and this is the the area of our remit where it does it does stop being like games criticism and does become psychology but with party games like what the purpose of a party game is to to enhance a party and i, I found that like i noticed that uh, even though everyone at the end of it was like oh, i don't know if that's a very good game but we, everyone played it for 20 minutes and it increased and improved the mood of the table dramatically yeah <laughs> like everyone had a lot of fun and it was a thing that people got out and they were silly with and they knocked things over and they laughed and then they were like, we're done with this now. But it, it enhanced the party. Maybe that's a feature for shut up, like a shut up and sit like, down video later. The best bad games. Well, the- I, I think it's, it's not even that. And I think that's not fair. And that's what I mean. I think that's why it's a it's an interesting um, th- thing to think about. Is it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's all very well for us to look at something and go, this is a bad game because the design isn't interesting or there's nothing there. But if it's a party game and it enhances a party... Is that good? Well, yeah. I mean, what about black? We, we, you said earlier, and I agreed that it's kind of like bla- would blackjack improve a party? I'd say no. Well, is blackjack a good game? I would say definitely not, but it still <laughs> exists for a purpose, right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing is like I think it's just that it's the multitude of games of being like, what is this? And actually, like in this, it's like is in our lens of thinking about games, it's not. Like, maybe that's not useful. Maybe it's like, when you think about party games, you're like, well, is this is this a good form of play in the form of humans allowing to play of being <laughs> childish and knocking over cups and pretending they're drinking wee and pretending they're getting other people to drink wee? And if it's a good medium for doing that, is it a good party tool? Because it's, 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 it's a complicated question and there's no answer. <laughs> that's that's my <laughs> should we move on yeah yeah yeah. No, i think it's just interesting no, to me com- anyway no completely that's definitely the most uh excellently pretentious conversation that <laughs> the tuesday night games could have hoped for from us about their game about drinking There's Pierce. nothing you can get from me that isn't going to be slightly tinged with pretension finally oh oh i'm excited to talk about this one because it's so strange it's weird we have played uh an early early prototype of Midlife Crisis uh, by Jacob Yaskov, the designer of Fog of Love. Mm. Uh, If you missed Fog of Love a couple of years ago, it is a game that sort of simulates relationships. It involves players uh, playing scenes and then deciding how their entirely fictional characters act in those scenes, working their way towards a destiny of perhaps breaking up or being the dominant partner or uh, being a perfect love team. And it kind of works and pops to life because you end up not just attached to your fictional character, but attached to this weird fictional relationship. And maybe you really want it to work. Maybe you don't. Maybe, and it ends up being weirdly like watching a TV show. Yep, at its best, Fog of Love is both moving and funny and accessible. Yeah. Um, certainly one of the most amazing releases of 2017. Yes, yeah, it's just one of those experiences where there's nothing quite like it. Speaking of things there is nothing quite like, now we have played the prototype of Midlife Crisis, which is sort of Jacob's next game in the series, and it is not a two-player game with two people controlling two fictional people. It is now a four 
player game. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, the definition of the difficult second album, frankly, of being like the Fog of Love is so unique and so different and so amazing to then not just go, all right, I'm going to make another game, but I'm going to make another game about a topic which is even hairier, even less sexy and even more complicated that's wild. Yeah, oh my godness. My my godness. My godness. My godness. So but you haven't even described how the four player thing works, which no. is nuts. So you've got something like Fog of Love. when Matt and I played, Matt and I were sort of the conscious mind of two characters in a relationship. I was mm-hmm. a guy who I think was a vet, and Matt what you were you you were a woman who worked in a I think car, it was a car salesman, yeah. Yeah, you were a car salesman. Sales lady. Sales lady. Person. So similarly we just like uh, in Fog of Love, we would play scenes from our hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, this is a midlife crisis thing. So the scenes were, and I'll get back to the scene because it's really stuck in my head. It was Matt saying like, oh, no one, he came home, or his character came home. And no said, one thinks I'm sexy. No one looks at me anymore. Uh, no one looks at me anymore. Because you'd been to the coffee shop and you were really upset. And then it's how I respond. Mm. And then like Fog of Love, you have these big weighty poker chips, which say A, B, C, or D. And you put them face down as to which way you would respond. However, in Midlife Crisis, there are two additional players. And so Matt and my character, uh, Matt had Jacob Yaskov sat to one side. He was my subconscious. He was your subconscious mind, your subconscious desires, your subconscious fears. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I had uh, Asger, designer of Flamme Rouge, who was playing my uh, subconscious mind. And we should stress immediately, just about everything about this game is subject to change. It's yes. very, very experimental at the minute. Yes. However, the mechanic in it that I loved more than anything was in Fog of Love, you play a scene and then how you react is you just put your poker chip face down then you both reveal. In Midlife Crisis, as it stands, currently all four players have poker chips and how you respond to a scene, like sometimes I would look at Asger and sort of have a little think with my, my conscious and subconscious, like ruminating on this and then one of us might put a chip down. However, with that scene where uh, you came back from the coffee shop, Asger just put a chip down, clack, it went straight down to the table because the rule is whichever of you reacts first gets to decide how your character acts in that scene yeah. if you don't want to discuss it. Which means, I and I just cracked up and was laughing. I'm still laughing about that because the way it felt for me was my wife comes home and says something quite thorny, which is, oh, no one finds me attractive anymore. And as I'm thinking to myself, should I tell her she's attractive to me? Should I tell her she is attractive? Should I tell her this is a natural part of aging and she should maybe get used to it? Instead, my subconscious mind just did Goes something. Bam. And I was like, I'm acting. What am, whoa, whoa, what am I doing? This doesn't seem like a... A good thing to do. What are we doing? Ah, yeah. Yeah, and it's basically a weird detective game in the fact that the way you succeed in the game, uh, rather than Fog of Love, where it was a thing of going through and trying to work out if you're a match or not, and like being like, you know, maybe you stay together, maybe you break up, but that's just the end of the little story. It's the idea of you are basically trying to track what other people, what, what your subconscious is doing in the idea of basically getting self-fulfillment yes there so you is- have to try and work out who you are based on what your subconscious seems to want yeah it's as opposed to fog of love uh midlife crisis is now a deduction game a full half of the board again in our prototype this is all subject to change is taken up by little cards that are things you might want like for example i want to be more interesting that was my secret goal i just wanted to be more interesting uh or you could uh you maybe want to feel sexy or you want to feel that you're in a more fair partnership with your partner Mm -hmm. but there's a huge grid of these possibilities and all you're doing with the choices you're making in scenes there's no like tracking uh sort of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert all that stuff like in um, fog of love in midlife crisis you just act in ways 
and it's kind of sad and, and bittersweet. You are just acting in ways so that you can explore your what your subconscious might want or what your partner might want. Yeah. So out of these four people, I believe the the conscious mind is trying to figure out what the subconscious wants. Yes. While the subconscious is trying to work out what your partner's conscious wants. Yes. Is, I've, I'm definitely getting that wrong. Well, no, I think that's right. And I think it's like, you know, the, the crucial thing with this, we keep saying, you know, it's it's subject to change and it's really interesting about this thing is true, but also it didn't really work at the moment. And I think like it's a really interesting combination of stuff. And I said this to the designer, I had a conversation, you know, he asked me what I thought and I was like, it doesn't really work. And there's a lot about it that's super interesting. Um, but it's this kind of strangely confused deduction game where you're trying to work out what your partner no, you're not trying to work out what your partner wants, but I found myself doing that. And at the end of the game, when it came to guessing, uh, my subconscious got it wrong about what Quinn's as conscious my partner <laughs> wanted. But I worked it out because I was, you know, I was kind of engaged and I had this strange thing of you wanting, like you do in Fog of Love, to take ownership of your character, but you kind of can't because the traits of your character, the true traits, are hidden from you. But then also that person who's sitting next to you is arguably half of your psyche. But I didn't really feel like well, that. Well, this was one of the things we were talking about afterwards. It was how um, it, it has some of the same uh, DNA, some of the same game designers in Fog of Love. Mm. Like, for example, it, in, it's a game about a midlife crisis, and yet it's also a game about couples. Yes. So Jacob has actually taken some of the foundation of Fog of Love and then said, well, what if this couple was essentially having a midlife crisis? Yeah. Um, however, that was that was slightly unusual for us because I was trying to fixate on myself, but I was in a partnership. Yeah. And so there yeah. was this weird thing of my only means of self-expression were what my partner was doing or wanted to do. And it's also the fact that this is trying to tell the story of somebody undergoing, you know, a midlife crisis. But we had no real concept of our own relationship history. So there's no, like, you've got no skin in the game. It's not like a, a real midlife crisis where you go, oh, my God, what am I doing in my life? Maybe I should leave my family. <laughs> it's yeah. like, here's two fictional characters. They might break up. You're like, all right. There were glimpses in it of stuff that did absolutely work. And so while yeah. I agree with you, it didn't work. Um, there, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was some excellently funny and really thought-provoking and sad moments in it. I remember one card you played, which was like, you came to bed and then what do we do versus what do we want? And so the four the four options were, um, you know, you could snuggle or you could have a conversation or you could read a book or you could go to sleep. or It was something like that. But it was one of the events where both the conscious and subconscious put out chips. So everyone's conscious did what their character was doing. But the subconscious revealed what you wanted to do. Yeah. And then when we all flipped that, that was really funny because it was this moment that we ended up I think your and my characters in the partnership chose to both snuggle and we're like, oh, we match. That's cute. But both of our subconscious minds wished we were reading. <laughs> and, you know, that... Now, there's, I mean, that, that's the thing is there are, in the same way that there was electric about Fog of Love, there were moments that popped out of it, gems where, gems of truth or interesting things that sparked conversations and uh, were fascinating. And I, the thing I, I felt about it basically was it was in trying to follow on from Fog of Love and taking some of the DNA of that game, it, it just felt like two games. And it felt like neither of the games had room to breathe. You know, it's like, and in a way, I think they could be two games. Like you've got Fog of Love 2, Relationship Boogaloo. And then you've got like- Fog of Love 2, Old and Sad. Yeah, Old and Sad. Fog of Love 2, Old of Sad. And then you have a game a, a, about somebody having a midlife crisis and a game where you have your conscious and the subconscious and a, a psyche about somebody changing. But rather than having- a negotiation of a relationship, having a negotiation of, of somebody's life, of like what's going to win here? Is it going to be the one, somebody going off the rails for a bit and are they going to keep going off the rails or are they going to settle down? And 
having two meant I couldn't there was so much going on that it had glimmers of interesting stuff in it but it didn't nothing really landed but here's what's fascinating I was talking to a bunch of people at festival and and Jacob's been going to festival for a long time and knows people there and actually you know Fog of Love as with many other um, classic games like Magic Maze uh, and Flam Rouge, I think. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure about Flam Rouge. Were kind of children of festival. There were games that kind of came out of it and came out of the some of the competitions there yes. for game, board game design. And the thing that was really interesting is that they said that, well, yeah, somebody said, he, you know, he brought Fog of Love years ago, like, and it was awful and everyone hated it. <laughs> like, this is just rubbish and it didn't work. And then he went away and he kept tweaking it and he kept tweaking it and he kept tweaking it. And everyone was like, why are you bothering? <laughs> it doesn't work. And then, yeah, basically he entered it for the competition again. And again, it was like people were looking at it in the run up to the competition and they were like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And then basically in the last three weeks before the competition, he just... Didn't he add the Destiny card? Yeah, or something? he clicked. Something clicked, and and three weeks before it changed, and then and I think that year it ended up like not winning the competition, and there was like an uproar because everyone was really annoyed it didn't because oh, wow. it was like everyone was like, "What the hell? Why didn't this win?" So it was one of these really interesting things that I felt I feel and felt really confident and comfortable saying both on the podcast and to the designer itself. Like I don't think it quite works yet because this is a guy who clearly likes taking on very difficult problems yes and crunching and trying and crunching and trying and i've i've got confidence that like eventually when this appears it might look drastically different to what we saw but it there's some really cool stuff in there and i'm sure you'll find it yeah it's just it with fog of love it took time and uh yeah like i think these things especially these flipping things like some people spend years making a game about firing arrows at orcs and and then still manage to make something that's that's slightly rubbish to be like i'm gonna make a game about midlife crisis <laughs> it's like this is probably going to take a bit of time that was one of the really interesting things talking to the, some of the design community at festival and how uh, it, when we were over there but they were saying that one of the useful things that they do when they're playtesting each other's uh, games and i found this very interesting because it doesn't really have parallels in video game design that you would put a prototype in front of this design community and they would say this doesn't have it like mm. not only like obviously it's a prototype it's not going to be particularly fun but all the designers will look at a game and say there is no spark here and therefore you are wasting your time on it you shouldn't be trying to refine it into something that's good and i think for, interesting yeah yeah and for me midlife crisis did have that spark. oh yeah absolutely absolutely it was like this is not there this does not really work but there were so many little sparks in it yeah. it's just it's one of those things where you think this is fascinating you've created a bizarre monster it's got some fascinating heart in it also and i'm who's sure gonna, you're gonna find who's, it like who's the market like can you I imagine mean, this being on kickstarter and then like I, walmart aren't gonna buy a hardcore like deduction game about midlife crises yeah are they? i mean it's there is something i think very interesting about the concept of like self-resolution self self-realization self-actualization so, yeah, self-actualization there was something really interesting and sad about how you know as you say the things being like hey let's cuddle neither of us want to cuddle we just want to read <laughs> the and thing, that's fine you know the thing it didn't have is um uh fog of love was always able to emulate like crap romantic movies you know yeah. the game subtitle is you know romantic comedy as a board game whereas what we didn't have from our midlife crisis experience playing this board game were all of the stereotypes in midlife crisis movies yeah. you know the the person like you know I'm, I'm guessing there's a you know a card in there about buying a motorcycle or well, that's it. and, and that's why I, I really did feel like we were we were looking at two games that had been like spliced together in a way that didn't quite land in the fact that like you know when people have midlife crises they don't tend to have them at the same time as their partner 
Yeah. Um, I mean, that would be really... I don't know if that's convenient or inconvenient. You'd be like, oh, I really want to buy my bicycle. Mm-hmm. I really want to go and live in Thailand. All right, see you later. Like, that would be kind of amicable in a way. Maybe. Yeah, or maybe you both go to Thailand and both drive my motorcycles around. I don't know if that counts as a midlife crisis. Maybe it does. Maybe you can have a midlife crisis together and both just become different people that also are the same these are questions for more ambitious board game designers than us matthew yeah it's true like i found my midlife crisis to be a solitary experience but hey why who knows maybe they can be co-op well if if you've had a midlife crisis why not get in touch at <laughs> contact at shut up and sit don't do that no, I don't, don't do that unless you've had a, a, a joint midlife crisis like with somebody else and it's been uh strange but enjoyable yeah i wouldn't mind reading about that that sounds nice yeah, yeah. particularly if you've had one and then come back to normal again and been like what the hell just happened why did we go to thailand on motorbikes for three months are we okay yes it yeah. is a natural thing yeah quinn's Let's buy a motorbike. Okay! Yeah! <laughs> so that's all the board games that we checked out at Festival. But now we'd like to talk a bit about the actual festival because it was wonderful and deeply strange. And I'm going to sort of just start this conversation by saying we talk about drinking a little bit on Shut Up and Sit Down. We talk yes. about drinking games or which games are good while drinking, uh-huh. which games you can teach while drunk. I got mm-hmm. an email in the Shut Up and Sit Down uh, uh, inbox uh, this week asking quite candidly if we were uh, alcoholics. What? Yes. So I want to say, first off, uh, no. But also, we Matt and I do drink responsibly, um, which is why Festival was an event where we drank more than we had drunk in the last six years. Yeah, we drank irresponsibly. But but that's not par for the course. No. For us. No, it's not. Why did someone think we were alcoholics? I don't know. Is it just because... Oh, it's probably because every time they see us, we have a beer, but that's because we drink beers whilst we're doing a twitch stream on a thursday night yeah i think that was part of it for which sure. is it's like that's not we're not drinking three or four beers every night <laughs> it's maybe once every two weeks when we stream yeah i guess if you extrapolate it's like are they drinking while filming reviews while yeah. writing like, scripts well based on this they have a beer every hour and if i extrapolate <laughs> that across their day that's an incredible quantity of beer no we're not alcoholics um actually but yeah we, we kind of temporarily um kind of engaged in some 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 rather heavy drinking whilst we're in denmark because denmark is uh, a country that basically has as bad, if not worse, of a drinking culture than Great Britain, England, which is really saying something. God save our gracious drink. Get me another drink. Drink <laughs> all the drinks. Uh, yeah, so, but this is actually kind of what set Festival apart from mm-hmm. all the other board game conventions we've been to. It is, uh, it w- you described it, I think, on day one as like a crazy wedding. It was. It was like crashing uh, a crazy wedding uh, in a wonderful way. Like crashing a nice wedding, though, in the fact that you turned up and everyone was hugging each other and everyone was bumping into people they clearly hadn't seen for ages and everyone knew each other. And then there was us. And we're like, Ugh. but the difference is, you know, I've never crashed a wedding, but I like the idea that if you did crash a snooty bad wedding you'd turn up and you'd see that but then everyone would be looking at you and going who are you whereas this was just people going oh who are you nice to meet you so you kind of were surrounded by people who knew each other but then everyone seemed really excited to to get to know you as well and the crucial thing here which i need to say straight away is the fact that it wasn't because people knew who we were in fact one of the fun things about festival for us was a lot of people didn't have any idea who we were we were just a couple of british guys and it meant we had people who were talking to us for like 20 minutes and then their friend came up and they were like oh they're the guests of honor and they were like what and we're like i assumed you knew that because you came to talk to us no 
everyone was just really nice. Yeah, there's a policy uh, within Nordic, which is Scandinavian, which is like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, Finland kind of. Uh, but Finns are weird, as we found out mm-hmm. from all the stereotype jokes when we were in Denmark. Um, but with is it the open chair thing, the open chair policy, which is that whatever you're doing, if you're having a conversation with your friends or playing a game, you kind of spiritually leave an open chair so that if anyone comes over, then you can be like, oh, we were just talking about omelettes or, yeah. or role playing. It or probably whatever. makes like business conversations incredibly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were just having a confidential conversation about, oh, great. No, but as a general rule of thumb at parties and social events and things like that, it's perfect. Um, but also the thing about festival was for us, we just became fascinated by it. Initially, we thought it was going to be really crap um, for lots of reasons, but mainly because we're cynical. But in reality, it ended up being one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had at a festival. And Well, you said festival there rather than convention, which yes, I think is telling. It is telling. And I mean, basically, festival, for those of you who don't know, is just the word festival, but with too many A's. <laughs> and really, it was much more like a music festival than it was a board game convention. And that's why a lot of the stuff um, within it, and a lot of stuff we talk about, you kind of need that context, because really what they've managed to get by Denmark being... Uh, a kind of socialist, a de- democratic socialist country in many ways. Um, it means that they have a way less of a problem with gender equality than we have elsewhere. They've still got massive problems with race, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, it seems mm. like a pretty racist country, unfortunately. But, you know, you just think, okay, you can't win. Something's wrong everywhere. Things are complicated. But it means that lots of people in Denmark grow up role-playing. And that's a normal thing. Like, kids do it in schools. So over here, role-playing and live-action role-playing has a lot of stigma, a lot of weight, a lot of uh, connotations. People will think, oh, Big Bang Theory, etc., etc. Whereas over there, it's just a thing everyone does. Which means when you have adult conventions that are like, hey, come and role-play, it means you don't just have a group of people for whom the main core of what you're doing is we are nerds yes the main core is we are people yes and it means that around that you can have a culture which blooms in different ways it doesn't have to be the traditional things that you have at conventions it can be the things you have at music festivals and it can be looser and wilder yeah so i mean part of uh, the gender equality that was so present at festival just meant that every night there was kind of a small sort of clubbing scene you know there was a bar there was a dance floor the dance floor was full every single night yeah and we've seen you know sort of small one-off dancing events like gen con has the uh, some kind of like big cosplay masquerade and mm-hmm. that's kind of fun but festival was just you know what it was just a lot of um boys and girls of like you know whatever age whatever sexuality just having fun together it was a lot of young sexy people having a lovely time together and dancing and and i can't imagine a board game convention where a people go out to the bar and dance all night but then also the people really put some effort into looking nice oh this was fantastic so festival ends with this enormously prestigious and beautifully well put together for the budget um, yeah ceremony where they give out these golden penguins for and we should stress here because we haven't said it yet festival is primarily a role-playing convention yes. it is in fact some of the best role-playing you can ever do with some of the best games masters for whom winning one of these golden penguins is like the most prestigious thing yeah. they could get um and unfortunately we didn't get to do any role playing because of some scheduling uh errors which is were, ridiculous i know which is, we're, but, we're honestly we're annoyed as annoyed with ourselves about it as as anyone else can but be it's with just us. why we have to go back next yes year. absolutely but this award ceremony at the end was they they it was vaguely black tie, which mm-hmm. Matt and I was so thrown by that Matt had to borrow a shirt from the designer of Flam Rouge. I did, I panicked because they were like, yeah, you're going to go on stage and talk for five minutes. I was like, but everyone in this room, which is a large school gymnasium, which they've 
turned the lights off and put cheap LED lights on the tables and made it look magical on a shoestring budget. Everyone was wearing like amazing gowns and tuxedos. It and was stuff. like a prom from uh, like Twilight or Riverdale. Or it reminded something. me of like Back to the Future. The un- it was a under the sea themed as well, and it was like this is like the under the sea themed ball. Um, yeah, just uh, just a totally different culture to anything I'd ever seen in the gaming scene, and it made me feel old in a really good way, in a really nice way. Every night being like all of these young, wonderful people who are just open and free and having a great time and celebrating the fact that they all love games as well. And I was like, this is a vision of the world that could be. I mean, yeah, maybe to put it at its most base, because we were telling people in Denmark, oh, you've got such a special convention here. And they just didn't know why. But then I was saying things to them like, you've got to understand, generally speaking, board game conventions in America, England, wherever, smell really bad. And they were like, what? And then, you know, you say this to young kids who are wearing like tuxedos and dresses. And that's not to say it was a standoffishly formal event. It It was just perfectly lovely. It was just... It was just another world. Yeah, it was. And it reminded me much more of being at a music festival and sort of way I used to in my early, early, you know, early years. The early years of just, you know, going and basically drinking too much for a weekend and having a lot of fun and dancing around to music. It's just a music festival that didn't have music, but it had everything else. And I found myself drinking till the early hours of the morning every night just because I was having loads of fun. Yeah. And everyone was lovely. And I think the reason we're spending so much time talking about this is uh, with Shucks, the Shut Up and Sit Down convention. Tickets on sale now, by the way. Just go to (laughs) shucks.show. But for that, we're constantly thinking, like, how can we make tabletop communities better, more accessible, more welcoming? And going to Festival was like this enormously heartening thing of, oh, sort of geek culture doesn't have to be primarily geeky. It can just be... It can just be warm and welcoming and accessible and leave so many of the unpleasant trappings of geekiness aside. Yeah, you can just take what you want and leave the rest. But also, it was like there was so much we could try and absorb and think about, especially in trying to make this a similar sort of atmosphere. But at the same time, it was built on such a different cultural basis that it's impossible to get into. Let's talk about the one thing that shocks or any other board game convention... (laughs) Could not steal from Festival. <laughs> no, yeah. Which and is the Dirt Busters. The Dirt Busters. So, as we said, it's based on socialist roots in terms of the way this stuff works. You can't rent out big convention centres, which means that a lot of these things are pinned, pitched as cultural events, and you go to schools, and you say, look, we want to use your school during half-term, when the kids are all gone, to run this event. And then the local you know, council go, all right, well, that's going to bring in this money from tourism, etc. And this looks like a cool cultural thing. Okay, you can do it, providing that you look after it and you clean it up at the end and all that stuff. But then the problem with running it in a school is it means that you've then, you're not doing it for profit. And then it means if you're not doing it for profit, the whole purpose becomes keeping the cost down low. Yep. Again, the other problem is, and it's a good problem to have, in Denmark, because they actually have some pretty decent social equality, if you're a cleaner, if you're someone who cleans toilets, you get paid well for that, as arguably... You should, because <laughs> it's a horrible job. Yep. So it means that if you've got a convention and you're running it non for profit for not profit, and then you want people to clean the toilets, you can't do that because it's going to be way too expensive. So what you do is you get people to volunteer to come to the convention for the weekend to clean toilets. Matt, how on earth are you going to get people to volunteer to clean toilets and everything else, by the way, at a board game convention? Yeah, and how are you going to do that whilst also they're not even getting a free ticket? They pay for their ticket and then they come and they spend the entire weekend pretty much cleaning toilets. Okay, so now we've we've framed the problem for you. The solution, the solution Matt it turns and I out. first encountered this when we just arrived at Festival <laughs> and we were leaving the school through the main entrance and a column of about 12 people wearing jumpsuits and singing in Danish uh-huh. 
uh, while blaring ca- metal. Oh yeah, carrying an enormous amplifier, blaring metal, marched in, and we were like, "Is that like? Are they cosplayers? Are they, is this some kind of live action role play?" Yep. Turns out those we had just witnessed the Dirtbusters for the first time, yeah. who basically are a cross between uh, cleaning staff and Viking berserkers. Yeah, and it's sort of people role playing as uh, yeah as an army unit, as an army unit with American biker gang roots. <laughs> Uh, and inspirations who roll around uh, wearing sunglasses and berets and a combination of military attire and biker attire and then like traditional like cleaning attire and mops and and fluorescent jackets and then they clean but, so but they but they also cause like mild chaos constantly yeah so the way that it might look for you as a board game like convention attendee is you're playing your board game and then suddenly the doors to the room blow open and like four people wearing jumpsuits with like cleaning equipment tied to their belts like like they look like ghostbusters more than anything they else. do actually, but like yeah. go, but ghostbusters who've like seen some bad stuff and like you know with the and thumb- maybe done some bad stuff yeah it's like ghostbusters but like a gritty reboot anyway it kind of reminded me of the rowdy three from uh from Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, oh, just yeah. jumping out of a van and being like, what's going on? But so you're playing your board games, these people come into the room, and then they're blaring metal from a huge amplifier, and they just start cleaning. Yeah. And the respect, that the, part of the reason they do it, I'm sure, is the sheer quantity of respect they get from all convention attendees. When they walk into a room, people smile, people cheer, they thank them, you know, because guess what? They're keeping the convention center clean. Yeah. They're keeping the cost down. And But the thing is, they're having fun while doing it. They are. Some of them are sober, but a lot of them are drunk. And a lot of them have been drinking all day, possibly all weekend. And again, we should point out, A, we're not alcoholics. And B, like, obviously drinking excessively is not a good or a smart or a clever thing. However, everybody has done it. And I did it when I was younger at music festivals, and I know it was stupid. Do I regret it? No. And there is a time and a place for being mildly responsible in a safe way. It's just that you never see that in the board game scene. No, so, and you definitely don't see it in cleaning stuff. No, and so basically they just roll around being loud, sometimes slightly obnoxious, listening to like heavy metal. But boy, they leave everywhere they go very clean. Oh my god, I have never seen cleaner toilets than at Fastable. Like they were reliably spotless for the entire weekend. Yeah, and I know exactly who to thank for that. At the closing ceremony at the end, they got they always get at Fastable a a parade of honor where every single person who attends the convention stands up, does a salute, and then they do a sort of like parade through the convention. Yeah. And as like mute as as like hardcore metal and they just plays. All listen to Man of War. And and it was yeah. It, it was very weird. We and the thing is, we did a shift. This is one of the many reasons we didn't actually do any role playing, but arguably <laughs> technically, technically the Dirtbusters are a kind of weird real life role playing group because you're kind of role playing the fact that you're some weird mad yeah. cleaning so Viking. We were given hard hats that said like assistant one and assistant two on yeah. them. We showed up, we started drink- We had to start drinking at nine AM as part of the kind of it wasn't really hazing. It was more that we were on the edge of a, a slightly drunk AGM that we didn't understand. <laughs> It was a weird meeting. Anyway, we did this and we did a morning of it, um, basically because we knew that the convention had this sort of socialist roots and that the idea that you you couldn't, you can't just go to festival and buy a ticket. You have to go to festival and buy a ticket. And then as part of that ticket, you do a bit of volunteering. You do something, whether it's a little bit of cleaning or a little bit of tidying or a bit of serving food or helping at a desk or whatever. Like you, everybody helps out, which is great. But as the guests of honor, we kind of, 
we didn't have any of that to do. And we thought, well, no, we kind of want to, we want to do something. So when we discovered there was a crowd of people who roll around uh, cleaning toilets and, and drinking uh, in the mornings, we thought, well, we've, well, admittedly, when we agreed well, to do this, everything, cleaning everything, everything, admittedly, when we agreed to do this, we had had a couple of beers, um, but we, we, we promised and we were there. We were there at 9am and we did a morning um, and it was, it was a real experience and it was a real, a really fantastic way of, of beginning to get to the heart of what on earth that festival was yeah i mean maybe we should wrap this up for my favorite anecdote which is we'd had three beers we discovered that breakfast was served at 11 so we still had like multiple hours I was to go really worried about that uh, matt and i were both sort of because we you don't we I, I can't remember the last time i was drunk before breakfast but then not only am i drunk before breakfast you and i are dressed in these ill-fitting jumpsuits yeah cleaning a danish school yeah and, and we weren't even sure we were cleaning the right room and i was yeah. like well look Worst case scenario, it's 9am, I've had three beers, and I'm just cleaning a Danish school. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. I mean, I don't think we were supposed to clean that room. I don't think that room was being used by the festival, but... You left it spotless. A teacher will come back and be like, hey, this room is a lot less dusty than it was before half-term. Because that room, let me tell you, was real dusty. So yeah, that's that's some basics about festival. That's the thing. And we we don't do this to tease it, but we do, um, for those of people who do um, support Shut Up and Sit Down and donate, we have a newsletter that we send out every month. And we decided, basically for all the caveat reasons that we've just gone through... We did make a video of us, we'll record a video of us being dirtbusters for the morning, which we will edit and put on YouTube unlisted. But we kind of felt that without this incredible long caveat background of this is what Fastival is, etc, 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 it didn't feel responsible to just put that online being like, hey, here's Matt and Quinn's just getting drunk in the morning and cleaning without understanding everything about where this exists within this big picture so uh we're going to do it as a thing uh for people who get the newsletter and with with the huge caveat like information that we've given people in that format so that they know so if you do want to watch that and you're not a supporter then just ask somebody who is a supporter i'll find somebody maybe i'll shut them down supporters forums it's completely fine for anyone listening to this to go hey somebody give me a link um because uh, i'm happy for more people to see it we just felt a bit weird reasonably for promoting it without some caveats because there's some other stuff like you know the dirtbusters user um like as part of their gear they have around on the walls and all their mad flags and all their mad traditions they have like a confederate flag and it's just this thing of being like i don't think these danish people have any concept of the, the current connotations of that really yeah and like if they did they probably wouldn't be cool with it because everyone we met there was super open-minded and super kind um but it being like uh yeah like there's a lot you need to there's, it was so much lost in translation for us as Europeans going to a place in Europe that I feel like just putting that into the wild to America without like a real heavy <laughs> set yeah, of, of course, caveats. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So that's that. But uh, if you are a subscriber or you are looking forward to asking for a link, you can look forward to that stupidity in the next month. Yeah, it should be in the next uh, few weeks after this podcast is released. Mm. Right, I think that should just about wrap it up for uh, for this month. Uh, thank you very much for being patient. We've talked about games that aren't out yet, games that aren't finished. Mm. We've talked about a Danish convention, which pretty much all of our listeners won't ever go to. But, no. But hey... We've really enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much. If you are interested in, uh, hey, having a little bit of a midlife crisis yourself, why not (laughs) join us in Vancouver in October of this year? That's a great way to spend money in the middle of a midlife crisis. Because it's beautiful. The weather's nice. They've got whales. 
The third ever Shut Up and Sit Down convention is happening this October on the 4th, 5th, and 6th. Matt and I are going to be there. Yep. We're going to have loads of special guests. <laughs> we're going to be there. Like, Yeah, we're going to be there. We're going to be there. I'm definitely going to be there. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. We're already uh, preparing a lot of stuff, and obviously it will not be as wild as Festival. Um, but if you do like the sound of a convention, which at its heart tries to be a little bit less about buying stuff and consumerism, a little bit more about community and coming together and making new friends and just being surrounded by nice people, being kind to one another we think it is one of the best things in the world for that we certainly do and if you're interested in a bit more of what standard board game conventions have to offer we're now the biggest board game convention in canada we've got over 50 publishers we've got a board game library with more than a thousand games yeah and we have a lot of people who come from north america who just you know get the train or like get a flight over and pop over check it out you can go to shucks.show for more information if you're interested um and yeah do have a look it's going to be real good matthew lee's i feel the need the need for lunch yeah i I got that need as well it might be spreading thank you very much for listening to the shut up to down podcast everybody we'll be back in another three weeks with some hot 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 well i was gonna say games there but then i started thinking about lunch again we should go lunch bye bye